Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the May 7, 2022 session, focusing on Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Tear free. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm Crystal Shepherd. And I'm David Adams. All right, so we titled this Tear Free, but Nikki wanted it to be very clear that not all tears need to be gone. She likes That's right. She likes happy tears. I love my happy tears. <laughs> Don't take we, my happy tears. <laughs> so we're, we really need to do a parenthetical tear-free, except for the happy tears. Except for happy tears. Okay. <laughs> Which leads me to ask, what gives you happy tears, or when's the last time did you, that you had happy tears? I have happy tears all the time. Hmm. I cry easily. Okay. Um, my kids, whenever we watch a movie together, they're always like looking at me at the, you know, the big emotional part because they know I'm going to be crying. <laughs> but I'll tell you the one thing, and I'm not even kidding, that makes me cry every single time is when children, it does not have to be my children, perform on stage. They can be reciting the months in preschool. They can be doing their first <laughs> Um, piano recital. They can be doing a huge production that they worked weeks to put together. It does not. It can be the three-year-old ballerinas. I am still going to cry. It does not have to be children. I even know. <laughs> like, I don't have to know the children on stage in order for it to make me cry. But anytime I see children performing on stage, it makes me cry. Mm. Happy tears. I just feel so proud of them. <laughs> I, know, I do. I'm like, they're so brave. It's so hard to get up there. <laughs> and when it's my children, just forget it. I'm a, yep. I'm a mess. <laughs> um, my, my happy tears came with the birth of my last child. Mm. Um, so we had like a little bit of a scary moment where I had a placental abruption and I had to go in for an emergency C-section and I never had surgery before. So with all my other babies, I got to see them right away. And with a C-section, you hear the cry before you see the baby. Mm. And so that moment, because, you know, I was scared of what was going on in that moment when I heard his cry is when I had tears of joy because oh. I knew that he was okay. Um, and I knew that I was okay. So that, that to me was, I've cried at all the births, but that, so in case they listen to this later, they know that I cried at every single one. Um, <laughs> but this last one, hearing him cry, made me cry tears of joy. So, Well, I know this is difficult for some people to hear, so I do need to apologize up front. But the last time I cried tears of joy was as I watched the final four and saw North Carolina beat Duke. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for those of you who are Duke fans, but there's some serious tears of joy going on when that happens. Understandable. Yes. Understandable. <laughs> well, uh, my my last tears of joy, most of the time they happen when I'm laughing so hard that, you know, the tears are flowing. And that tends to happen when I sit by David Adams at events <laughs> because he's going to lean over and start muttering things. And he starts, he starts gently and he just plants seeds and then he starts watering them and they get funnier and funnier. And then you're just, you're crying. You're trying to hold it back. So my advice to anyone who doesn't want tears of joy, who does, you know, is choose whether or not you sit beside him at events. <laughs> now, if you've been listening to previous podcasts, you know that I warned you that people would say this at some point. <laughs> it's all true. <laughs> all 
Unfortunately, not all tears are tears of joy. Some tears are tears of sadness or grief, horror. Uh, David, help us uh, get a look and a start at this text. Sure. My family was a very religious and observant bunch of Christians when I was a child. If our church doors were unlocked, we were there. If there was a program going on, we signed up for it. I remember being told that I was going to go to Sunday school and church every week until I was old enough to drive myself home, with an implication that I was going to have to somehow come up with the car, too. For the kids in our family who weren't deathly ill, the only way to miss church on a Sunday morning was to take on the assignment for the hardest, most disgusting house chores possible, generally involving bad smells and hard work all of which had to be completed before the rest of the family came home at around noon. My parents went the full route of good, solid, evangelical white Protestants in the 1970s. We even had plaques on the wall, Bibles on every shelf, and all the latest popular religious books readily available. Of course, the most memorable of those books that we talked about were the outlandish ones. Beyond the Frank Slaughter books, and those seem pretty good, we were treated to books talking about the spaceships of Ezekiel and whatever pseudo-religious piffle Hal Lindsey was spewing at the time. Growing up in that environment, I get the idea that insecure religious parents were concerned that their kids may not be properly frightened into making that trip down the aisle of their church, which guarantees their entrance to heaven when they die. It's easy to see how religious grifters can use a social context of a given era to create a fear-based market for their wares. After I got over the attempts to terrify me and actually started reading the Bible for myself, the effect of this sort of thing wore off. I no longer looked at Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, or other works as predictions of some sort of fiery doom I was going to endure if I didn't claim my place as one of Jesus' special little white people. But instead, I saw them as words written to people who were going through some hard times, who needed some words from God to help them make it through. All that aside, though, I was greatly intrigued and relieved to hear our own Bert Montgomery bring up an important question a couple of weeks ago, when he asked how long people have been pushing the fear factor of the whole rapture storyline in our society, eventually tying it to our need to feed white privilege and power. When you're running scared, you're easy to steer. And if we can make these passages about spaceships and spooky beasts rising out of the sea, we can keep ourselves from talking about the essential messages behind those kinds of images. So it is even while we complain about the difficulties implicit in engaging apocalyptic literature, today's passage contains an important word that perhaps rises above some of the others. To me, Revelation 7 is a microcosm of the larger book in that it contains a much simpler message wrapped in thick imagery. To sum it all up, there will come a day when all those people who have been done wrong will be gathered up, consoled, and nurtured. As the last verse says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. In hindsight, for some people, this might be one of the scariest packages and passages of the entire book. 
God's going to gather people who have been oppressed and care for them? What does that do for those of us who are working so hard to keep that oppression going? What do we get? As I read the Gospels, I tend to believe that there is an inescapable calculus whereby sheep and goats are separated, where the last become the first, where people who grabbed all they could from others discover that they already had their reward and are now facing an eternity where they have cut themselves off from the things that really matter. A number of people are eager to talk about the ordeal mentioned in Revelation as some sort of global catalysm that cataclysm, that they somehow survive because they do religion better than other people. Some of them are even eager to support such a cataclysm, feeling that they'll get some reward of some sort. How terrifying must it be for such people to confront the notion that the cataclysm has been going on for some time and that they may actually be the cataclysm? How must it feel to hear someone claim that God is in the business of wiping away tears, especially if they're the one causing those tears? Revelation was written to an oppressed people, not a dominant group. It calls society's dregs to hang on and endure in the face of great hardship and to keep faith while they do it. History is full of stories of martyrs and oppressed populations who struggled to let their love of God and others guide them through even the toughest times. And words like those found in this passage are like a beacon that explains what is awaiting at the end of these travails. They're not a promise to people who already have safety, comfort, possessions, and public admiration. Far from it. So, of course, we have to refocus that message sometimes and turn it more in our favor. Should you happen to embrace this message, like the United Church of Christ embraces verse 12 as the final line in its statement of faith, they'll call you a clueless liberal or not an orthodox Christian. Maybe they'll say you're a social justice warrior or a heretic, or just say, oh, you're woke. Go ahead. Tell everybody that Revelation is a scary book full of spooky stories that scare you into being a real Christian. Skip right over that stuff that might indicate that God has a heart for the oppressed and marginalized people of the world. Who reads this book anyway? No one has to know that you've taken it in this false direction. But God knows. David, thank you. I like when when you said, if you're running scared, you're easy to steer. And I was like, oh, gosh, like that just sums up like so much of my childhood in church. Um, and just it. Oh. I mean, I'm almost, I almost don't have words um, because I can now, like I'm starting to think about how many ways in which scripture is used to scare people, it scare them into making a decision, scare them into falling in line, scaring them into, into following false leaders. I mean, it's all these things. And I just, I appreciate you sharing that and sharing this, this view of revelation being for an oppressed people. And I, I, I started thinking about, you know, what I had said in the last podcast about how we used to scour Revelation to find out when the apocalypse was going to happen. And really, that's such a completely false way to look at it, I guess. And to think about that it wasn't written for us little, you know, teenagers um, in a conservative Baptist church. Um, so I appreciate you kind of giving that perspective. It's going to cause me to go back and read Revelation again in an even different way than I have before. 
there's a lot there. I'm going to need to ha- take some time to sit with it, I think. Dave, that also brought back memories for me. Um, I, we're of a similar generation, but I also remember uh, we used to go to revival services, and sometimes the, the revival preachers would preach from Revelation as a way to scare us and shake us up. And they also had these books they would sell you that had incredibly curious <laughs> yes. charts that you could fold out out of the back of the book. <laughs> and in fact, I just did this on Google, I, which is don't do this, but I, I looked for <laughs> Revelation chart and they are all over the place that, that will help you unpack the meaning of Revelation in terms of interpreting the end times. And it was a whole industry. And mm-hmm. I, I remember, you know, my dad bought some of those books and would be pouring over them. Now he ultimately wasn't sure that that was the right way to interpret Revelation, <laughs> thankfully. But, you know, I almost wish I still had some of those books just for the, uh, just for the memory. Now, they, they say that sex sells, but really fear sells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a different upbringing than all of you. <laughs> I, I certainly was in evangelical culture and knew that there were books that people sold to scare people using the book of revelation. Um, but like, I never read a left behind book in my life. I never had any of these books in my home. While these are things that I know that are true. I am also equally horrified, um, thinking about the way that people mixed fear and capitalism, um, in order to take advantage of people who, who are vulnerable in a multitude of ways. Um, and also incredibly grateful for the way that you called everybody out in your introduction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I really just have a little bit of a sense of awe right now in the way that you put all that together. And I kind of want to take it and post it somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I won't, I'll let you do it. That's all yours. But a lot of times in our churches, particularly, we don't name when people do wrong things because it's going to create conflict and it makes us feel uncomfortable. But the reality is sometimes you have to call people out and say what you're doing is wrong and hateful and horrible. And the things you are doing are evil because when you prey on people's fears, that's evil Mm -hmm. period end of the line. I like you, I I won't argue with you. It's just evil. So I'm glad you did it. And I appreciate it. Yeah. I guess one of the things that I really wanted to convey the sense of, so thank you for that. But what what I really want to convey the sense of here was this idea or a picture of how you have something that's written for, for people who have lost everything, who've risked everything, who have nothing, you know, who've just been so ground down and you take something written to help them and support them and get them through hard times. Right. Mm-hmm. And instead you use it to your advantage to scare people into buying your stuff or to believing yeah. the way you want them to believe. Mm-hmm. And, and to just, further victimize them. Yeah. To ver- further victimize n- new people, you know, people who yeah. might make common cause with the oppressed if you gave them a chance, but now they're right. running scared of, because they're not ever told that this helps with that. Right. Well, it's also a diversionary tactic, right? Absolutely. I mean, it diverts us away from understanding the text as aimed at people who have lost it all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just to put it in context, imagine this being written to a Ukrainian family. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. I mean, that, to give to give people hope where there is no hope, mm-hmm. 
I mean, so that's a good thing if it's real, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's terrible to take it away. Yeah. I'm going to butcher this uh, scholar's name, but I recently had the opportunity to meet Claudio Carvales. Is that how you pronounce it? He is a Latino scholar, um, teaches at Union uh, Theological Seminary in New York, and has a real gift with helping us put into language and sometimes music. He likes to sing <laughs> the things that we see in Scripture and, and the, the aspects of faith that we sometimes have trouble talking about. He recently did a sermon, uh, in fact, this year in Lent at Riverside Church in, in New York. And I want to, uh, you know, I don't have time to give you the whole sermon. And I wouldn't nearly do it as well as he does. But there is a there's a video of it. I'm, we're going to put it in the show notes, as well as the song he sings uh, that he references in, in the sermon. Um, so I, I hope you'll go listen to it because it's much better than my reading. But maybe this, to me, the, his words here echo the sentiment of this text in Revelation. So here, here's, here are his words from the sermon. He said, So many times it feels like our world is gone in heavy and lighter ways. Worlds, many worlds, gone. Sometimes it is my own world crumbling down due to circumstances, hardships, and unexpected events. Sometimes it is the world of my family that seems to go away, and all of a sudden I start to ask myself, how can I belong there? Sometimes it is the world of my church that comes crashing down and I have to gasp for air. Sometimes it is my own country dismantling right in front of my eyes and I see democracy eroding like a mountain of sand. And if all that was not enough, our earth is burning with climate disasters and global warming, moving toward a time when the earth as we know it will be gone. But in order to survive this, we need to find solace in the company of God. And every time I realize that God is with me, I cannot help but find a song of praise within me. Praise God. Oh, praise God. Let me tell you a secret. I can't live without an alleluia. When I see I am alive, I have to say, oh, glory, alleluia. I look at my body and in wonder I say, wow, hallelujah. I look around and I see my family. My goodness, hallelujah. I go out and see the skies, be it a luminous Sunday or a weary cloud morning, and I go, oh, hallelujah. I see the birds chirping and I smile and chirp back. Hallelujah. Isn't this exactly the story of the Africans? turned into slaves in this country. When life was an eternal Lent and there was no way to go, they created the Alleluias to each other, for each other. By singing about a new heaven, they, they felt the new heaven in their bodies. And even in the midst of slavery and death, they sang. When the devil sang harsh things to break them down, they sang back. Those songs in the fields helped them make sense of life. Oh, those songs were alleluias in the midst of a harsh life, in the midst of death, resurrections in the midst of lynching trees. 
In the midst of forced labor, they sang their freedom. On in the midst of the civil rights movement, they were able to cry glory. And their songs were like the poem, The world is gone and I must carry you. Their songs created a, created a way out of no way. Their songs helped them deal with their pain, make pain turn into something powerful. Their songs resignified their lives so they could keep going. Their songs were their constant alleluias. May we read Revelation in the same tone of voice. May we hear these words of hope for people who are oppressed even now in our world and who need, again, the words of hope. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.